Chapter 4, uh, we're in this uh, passage one last time today before we move on to chapter um, 5. So here we are, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I remind you that we're working through this book. I think this is our uh, fourth uh, month in it, actually. So Hebrews chapter one, uh, 4, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And this is uh, God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That would be the uh, Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Reference to the Old Testament. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a quote from Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has some, somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've likely noticed a trend uh, in uh, spamming uh, recently in the last six months or so. It's a really a clever trend. It's kind of, uh, it's basically targeting uh, people like us, you know. Uh, you get this uh, weird email that says, uh, uh, oh, your FedEx package was, uh, we tried to deliver it. Uh, we couldn't deliver it. So uh, click here to print this form and uh, take it to the blah, blah, blah. And you, and you, you, you go, oh, oh, my FedEx package. Did I order one? I think I did. I might have. Uh, uh, and it kind of it baits you, right? It's a little clickbait thing for you, a spam thing. Or you might, it might be an order placed on Amazon. Or I had one recently that was uh, your transaction, your, your funds have been transferred. And you go, well, my, my funds have been transferred. What? 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 You click here to blah, blah, blah. So it's a spamming thing, right? Uh, but I had one of... I don't know, four or five days ago that was kind of a creative. Who's had those spams, those kinds of spams, right? That family of spamming. Uh, you finally get used to it, and uh, it, it's pretty easy to spot. But um, So I had one a, a few days ago that said, your 41 pictures have been uploaded to Picasso. And uh, I thought, hey, that's a pretty good, isn't it? Now, I, I guarantee, uh, listen, I have 2,000 f- pictures on this phone. Um, I, I just... 
you know, offloaded 8,000 of them about six months ago to make, make up some room. So I take pictures all the time. It's ridiculous. But I've got 2,000 pictures on here, and I promise you there are no pictures of the human form on this telephone. Uh, I don't have to worry and freak out that 41 of my pictures, are, I, I think I could survive it. Uh, I don't think there's anything uh, horribly incriminating on my phone, so 41 pictures. But you could see how that could scare some people uh, in this present culture. Your 41 pictures have been uploaded, and you go, my 41 pictures. In fact, that's probably a good uh, joke to play on your teenage uh, child. Uh, just, just go home and say, uh, hey, how is it that all your phones, uh, your pictures on your phone got uploaded for the whole world to see and see what they do? Um, so, but my whole point is, um, our main idea is kind of like that. Um, it's scary in one sense, eternally scary. And uh, so the main idea that I would love for us to focus on today, <coughs> but not without great redemption, uh, is this. Oh, come on. Oh, that's not it, you dirty dog. You know what? There it is. Sorry. <clears throat> that just came out, didn't it? Okay. Dog. Oh, man. You know, this is the one bad product Apple makes. Did you know that? It's the one bad product they make. The, 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 it won't screw in. All right, come on, man. This is redonk. All right, that may take a few minutes. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Anyway, the point is... God knows. That's the point. The point is God knows. That's the main idea. God knows. I mean, you can see in verse 13 that that's a very uh, powerful statement there. Um, God knows. And I know that, that a short main idea like that, God knows, is, a, is a kind of a broad statement to make, okay? Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's a big statement. You know, when churches come and they sit down and they try to uh, write, thank you, Mason, they try to write what's important to them. You know, what is, what's important to our church? You get into a place and you, you know, buy laws and you got to write down the stuff that's important to you. You go, okay, well, what's important to us? Well, uh, how about truth? Truth is important. That's a good one. Or how about the person of God, that's important. Yeah, the person of God. Uh, how about, um, how about um, um, worship? How about God himself? Those, those are big, giant, overarching topics that, that basically all bring us back to who God is, right? Well, this is a very giant, overarching topic that God knows. It is to say, God knows all about us. He knows all we have said or will say. He knows all that we have done or will do. He knows everything that we think or have thought. He examines everything that we fail to do, uh, everything that we're supposed to do, everything that we have done. Um, it's all true. No creature, verse 13, is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, gosh, um, if that's true, then the fact that God would offer us rest is pretty amazing, isn't it? If God sees all of our secret sins, if he knows every misdeed, um, that, 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 that this gospel would make, be made um, available to us, this gospel in Jesus Christ. All right, so to our first sermon point, it's this, the rest of the rest. That's our first sermon point. You okay, dude? Okay. Oh, you know what? Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's in the zipper pocket. Bam. Thanks, man. You know what to do. Um, 
So the rest of the rest, that's our point. Um, last time we left off, we were still anchored in the comparison um, being drawn by the writer of Hebrews to the Old Testament, right? The wilderness wanderings, the Israelite people who wandered around the desert, and um, we're being compared to that. The uh, original readers of this book are being compared to that. And if we're tracking with the writer here, um, we're remembering as would these uh, first century readers, these, these Jewish first century readers, the first recipients of this letter, they would be tracking with him. Thank you so much. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Bam. You are a champ, Mason. Ah, thank you. Let me swab my head. Um, uh, it's celebration. Yeah, enjoyful celebration. Um, if we're tracking with them, we're, we're going, okay, um, you have these, uh, this group of rebellious wanderers, and um, um, their generation um, does not enter the land of rest, right? They disobey God, and so what God does is he says, okay, um, you, uh, he brings them up to the land of promise, brings them up to the land of promise. They don't believe that he'll give it to them, except for Joshua and Caleb. And so Joshua and Caleb of that generation are the only two that make it into the land. God says to the rest of them, guess what? I'm going to just let you wander around until you die of old age. And once you die of old age, all your kids can enter into the land. All right? So we, we think about that and we go, okay, well, they, a group of Israelite people really did enter the land of promise. There, there's, there's, even though that first generation didn't go in, there's still a group of Israelites that did go into the land of promise. The land of promise was, uh, that, that was fulfilled. They did go into the land of promise. And so the question is, folks, why does it say that there's a rest that still remains? I mean, if it was all met in the entering of the land, why are we still talking about it? Why is the writer of Hebrews still talking about it? Well, look at verse six, if you would. Since therefore it remains, there it is again, it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, God appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, what he's saying here is interesting. He's saying, okay, hey, yeah, a group of people entered the land of rest. That really did happen in the past. It did. Later, you got David talking about rest. And David's way later. He's talking about, he's saying today. He's talking in present terms. So it can't just mean that it was all fulfilled by the Israelite people coming into the land of promise, ancient Canaan. It can't just mean that. And it goes on too in verse eight. Hey, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. All right? Joshua does take them into the land. David is later. But if, that, if, that was, it was, if that's an ultimate fulfillment, it can't be so. The, uh, it's got to be something in the future is the point. That's the writer's whole point in citing Joshua and David. So the land of Canaan, the, the Israelite people moving into the land of promised rest was a kind of type. I don't know if you've ever heard that word before, that, a, a type, but a, a type, we're going to camp out here for just a few minutes, uh, is, a t is a theological term. And the study of types, Bible types, is called typology. 
okay? And um, you've got to be careful with types. Um, For instance, you've heard me say this kind of thing before, that you probably heard some kooky preaching in your life. Uh, You think back, I'm sure in this classroom too, but you've heard some kooky preaching in your life where people go, well, the whirlwind is Jesus. Or they'll say, the water is Jesus. Or the oil in the lamps is Jesus. That's cuckoo talk. Um, you've heard me say this before too, where, you know, David picks up five stones, you know, young David to go slay Goliath and, and people go, well, stone number one represents truth. It does. I mean, where, where are we getting that? Stone number four represents blah, blah. What, what, that's, that's making stuff up. You can make the Bible say anything you want. If you're going to do that, you know why the Bible tells us David picked up five stones. You know why? Because he picked up five stones. That's why. That's, that's, all it, that's all it means. It's a, it's a point of the story, okay? And so you, you have to be careful when you talk about Bible types because it can move into kooky territory very quickly and you can start saying, well, I guess this points to this and well, maybe this points to this and so on, all right? But a good rule of thumb when you think about Bible types, okay, is, is um, we, can, we, can, we can find a Bible type when the Bible itself invites us to do so pretty good rule of thumb, isn't it? The Bible invites us to do so. Um, um, we, we can call it a Bible type. And I'll give you an example here. Um, you don't have to turn. Let me just jump here real fast. Um, yeah, listen to this. Um, this is from Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? That's talking about Adam, isn't it? Verse later it says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So the Bible is saying that Adam is a type. That's called an invitation to make a comparison, right? The Bible wants us to do that. It goes on a few verses later saying, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's called a type. It's saying, hey, Adam had federal headship. Jesus has federal headship. Adam's a type says very specifically. Here's another one from uh, Apostle Paul also who wrote in Romans. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Typology. Here's another lesson from the lips of Jesus. Um, this is uh, Luke eleven twenty nine. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So, by the way, um, you got to believe in Jonah or you, you have to get rid of Jesus because Jesus sure believes in it. And Jesus says, hey, no sign for you except the sign of Jonah. Now, what do you think that means? What do you think Jesus means by that? Three days in the grave. Jesus is making a comparison. He's inviting us to compare. Um, now... Um, Here's another type for you. In Greek, the name is Jesus. In Hebrew, the name is what? 
Joshua. That's a type. Joshua, you know, Moses brings people to the edge of the promised land. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Joshua's cited here in our passage today. It's basically saying, hey, uh, you want to talk about an exodus. You want to talk about leading into the land of promise rest. You want to talk about taking God's people in. Well, that's, uh, that's a type. Jo- Joshua's a, a type. Uh, verse 8, it says in our passage, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, here's an application for your life. There is present rest in Jesus Christ. There really is. There's present rest. He really is the friend of sinners. Um, here's a quote for you. Um, I've never heard of this guy, but he's quoted by A.W. Pink. And um, in fact, it's not even about this. It's about, the, it's about the next hunk of verses that pull us into uh, uh, chapter five. It's the last few in this chapter. pulls us into chapter five. But, um, but listen to this. I just, it was written such a long time ago, but tell me if this resonates in your soul. Come as you are. Say what you feel. Ask what you need. Confess your sins. Confess your fears. Confess your wandering thoughts and affections. Is that not as fresh today as it was 100 years ago? I mean, that that is a rest afforded us in the gospel. Say what you need to say. Say the hard things. Ask the questions. Ask God how long. Tell him you're afraid. Tell him you're having trouble trusting him. Tell him you need grace. Tell him you're doubting. Tell him you're angry with him. Come as you are. There is rest afforded you in this life. Oh, it's a, there's a future rest. We'll talk about that more. There's a future rest, but there's a, there's a rest presently in this life. It's not the ultimate rest, but it is your rest now, Christian. Um, it, it is a... Um, a realized eschatology. You know, eschatology is a study of end, end times. There's a realized eschatology. There's a, there's a thing that's gonna happen, but there's a present reality. There's a realized eschatology that simply means that though we have the fullness of blessing one day, we have full blessing today. All right, uh, next point um, is the heart of the Sabbath. Uh, so let's rewind. The, uh, the uh, argument by the writer of Hebrews thus far has been stacked up like this. So, you know, you, you, you re- rewind to the beginning of the letter. The, the argument's been stacked up like this. Um, angels are amazing, but Jesus is better than angels. He's superior to angels. God uh, says so. And he also calls Jesus son. No one else does he call son. And he calls Jesus, God the Father calls Jesus God. Never dream of calling an angel that. So uh, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, I know angels are amazing. They're important agents of God. They're uh, magnificent. They're resplendent. Uh, They've been at at critical points in redemptive history. It's true, but Jesus is superior to angels. Then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, hey, Moses, are you kidding? Moses, Moses is amazing. Moses was a prophet. Moses was the mouthpiece of God. Moses was the leader. Moses had a miraculous calling. Um, Moses led the people uh, uh, out of Egyptian captivity, but Jesus is greater than Moses. If you think that freedom from captivity was amazing, get a load of this Jesus, writer of Hebrews would say. Uh, It goes on. Hey, the Israelites were led out of slavery toward a land of rest. Then it goes on to say, well, they grumbled. They uh, disobeyed, so God had them walk around until uh, they croaked uh, of old age. 
Then their kids entered the land. All right, now what's interesting is that the word used for rest up to this point is a word translated, it's an Old Testament word, okay? Now you know that we've got, um, we, we've got the Bible and the New Testament is written for us in English and the Old Testament is written for us in English, all right? So first, first century believers, what are they reading? Well, the New Testament is yet to be established. All they do, they do have circulated letters of Paul. But what are they talking about? They're talking about the Old Testament. That's what, that's what New Testament church is reading is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is in what language for them? Greek. All right. So the Greek word that, that they're reading um, means um, it, it, it points to the land of rest. It points to Entering Canaan and the land of rest. It's, got, it's, it's, it's a certain word that means that. When you get to verse 9, the word changes. And um, if you look at verse 9, it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest. Now, all of your translations, uh, maybe not the King James Version, but uh, most of your translations say Sabbath rest. In fact, if you have an NIV in your lap, it's hyphenated, Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest shows up that you have two words there because um, it's two different words. The word for rest changes. Um, it's, 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 um, it puts it in more of a present tense. It's kind of like mobile Exxon. It's a Sabbath rest, and, it, and uh, it, it pulls in the idea of the Sabbath, this, this, this present um, resting in God. All right, so my, the, the, I'm saying all that to say this. There's a, there's a an inter, how do you say it? Inter, uh, intramural, I never played sports. So uh, there's an internal debate about whether or not then uh, we should observe the Sabbath anymore. Did you know that? I mean, some people go, hey, come on, man. I mean, if, uh, if, the, stuff from, in the, if the stuff from the past is past and there's better stuff now, if things are fulfilled in Jesus, then aren't some things you know, put away like the Sabbath? If the new, if the, the new has come, um, and even the word, the verbiage change, Sabbath rest, the, the word for rest is different. Uh, that's the old stuff. Here's the new stuff. Do, do we really even have to have a focus on the Sabbath anyway? Is, are we supposed to set a day aside? All right. Anyway, big, big argument. D.A. Carson, I mean, that's a great name. He doesn't think, uh, he doesn't observe the Sabbath the same way. Um, quite a few others, most others say, oh, wait a second. Well, that's the whole point, Dave. Thank you. In short, I, it's right in my notes. In short, it's the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, you know, um, the civil law of Israel, uh, ancient Israel, is gone. You know why? The same reason the civil law of the USSR is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Civil law gone. The ceremonial law of, of, uh, of the Old Testament is gone. You know why? Don't need a sacrificial system because of Jesus. You don't need uh, prophet, prophets and priests anymore because of Jesus. Um, everything's fulfilled and met in Jesus. All right? So those things are abrogated. But not the moral law of God. Not the Ten Commandments. That, that's important for you to know, not just because it's some Bible knowledge and that you need to know about debates that are going on and all that stuff, but ladies and gentlemen... Yeah, it's the Ten Commandments. Think of how this applies to your life. You can't just break apart God's moral law and say that one of them uh, doesn't apply anymore. But listen to the application for your life on this. Listen. Um, Friends, God cares about you. God wants the best thing for you. To cease work, 
to gather like this in worship, to focus on holy things together as a, as a gathered, redeemed people, looking at God's word, putting ourselves under the authority of God's word, that's good for us. It's not good for us like a vitamin that we take once in a while and forget other times. I mean, it's essential for us. God knows this. This, this time of rest is critical to us, ladies and gentlemen, to worship, to rest. It's good for us. And let me be very clear, by the way. This, this whole, um, you know, we had church in our living room crap that people love to do uh, when, they, when they just, well, how, well, yeah, we hadn't been there for a few months, but uh, we had church in our living room. Oh, really? How many times? Half? Zero? Three years ago? I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's, a dummy's, that's a dummy's answer. Um, it's, it's good to meet with your family in the condo on vacation. It's okay. You can do that. It's fine. You don't have to punch your card at the church all the time. You don't have to do that. It's okay. Um, if you're in Destin for two and a half days and you don't go to church on a Sunday, it's okay. But let me tell you, if you're able to come and be gathered to God's people, then you ought to. I mean, if, if God has called you to a worshiping church family and the leadership of that worshiping church family, the elders have said, you know what? We're going to meet here and we're going to meet here. You know, some churches don't meet on Wednesday night. Did you know that? Some churches don't meet on Wednesday night. Some churches have uh, community groups or small groups twice a month. Some have it four times a month. Imagine that. Four ruined Sunday nights. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding you. But my point is, I'm just, I'm just, you know, you're like, oh, Downton Abbey, ah. Um, <laughs> but my point is, if the elders of your church have said, hey, you know what, we're going to gather here and here, and, and then you ought to go, you know what, then that, that's what we'll do. This is where God's called us. That's what we're going to do. We're going to gather to worship. And the reason, ladies and gentlemen, is we cease work and we don't work seven days a week and we focus this time where we do get relaxation and we do get recuperation is that by doing that, we're saying, we trust you, God. And uh, we know that this is the best thing for us, and um, it's not legalistic. It's me helping you. Um, it's a joy to be with the worshiping people of God. It's a joy to be with y'all. It's a joy to be with each other. It's a joy to find other Christians. You've been in some uh, hostile area, and you don't find any believers, and all of a sudden you run into a believer, and you're like, oh, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus? Wow. That's what we get to enjoy. I'm saying to you that God knows this. Uh, it's a joy, and more importantly, it's a means of grace. All right, our last point is this, the point of the knife. Look at verse 12. Um, you know, it, we, it's just said, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'm sure, sir, I'm sure you've seen people fall away from the faith. It's heartbreaking. How do we not? Well, verse 12, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to read something to you from this uh, commentator. Kistemacher is his name. And it's so awesome. I'm just going to read you a chunk of it, and I won't make it boring either. I'm not going to read it like a robot. It's awesome. Check it out. He says, um, the writer, the author of Hebrews, speaks in terms of that which is not done and in a sense, cannot be done. He's talking about dividing soul and spirit and so on. So on. Who is able to divide soul and spirit or joints and marrow? I mean, think about it. Who's able to do that? Soul, spirit, joints, marrow. Who's able to do that? And what judge can know the thoughts and attitudes of the heart? 
The author uses symbolism to say that what man ordinarily does not divide, God's word separates thoroughly. Nothing remains untouched by scripture, for it addresses every aspect of man's life. The word continues to divide the spiritual existence of man and even his physical being. All the recesses of body and soul, including the thoughts and attitudes, face the sharp edge of God's probing eye, his dividing sword, whereas uh, man's thoughts remain hidden from his neighbor's eye, God's word uncovers them. God's word is called a discerner of man's thoughts and intentions. In the Psalms, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Is that not awesome? The, the, the sharp edge of God's dividing sword finds every bit of us out, ladies and gentlemen. You know, um, I could put it in a, in a lighter way for you. You know, Paul Carruth, are you in here, Paul? No? Paul Carruth told me one time, and I don't know if this is like a doctor statement or whatever, maybe it is, maybe they tell every doctor student, uh, medical student, but he said, Paul said, uh, there's no place in the human body I can't reach with a long enough needle and a strong enough arm. That doesn't disturb you a little? <laughs> yeah, I can get in there. Well, you know, God, God can find everything out in your soul, in your ideas. God sees absolutely everything. He gets in everywhere. I got an application for you. The application is this. It's where I got, the, it's where I got my sermon point. I got a knife right here. All right, so a knife has, uh, if you're a cooking person, uh, you know that you know, there's, a, there's a spine and you know that there's a bolster right here if you have a chef knife or whatever, okay? And you, you, uh, but here's the blade, of course. And, uh, but if I asked you where the tip of the knife was, what would you say? I bet you'd say here. You would be wrong. The tip of the knife is here. So on a knife this size, what, four and a half inches? It's about this last inch or so. That's the tip of the knife. And that's an important culinary thing because if I said, uh, taking the tip of your knife in a recipe, you know, slice the strawberry wafer thin. Well, then you would know using the tip of your knife. You wouldn't go, okay. <laughs> this is the point of the knife. This is the tip of the knife. This is the point of the knife. And what I'm saying to you is God's word is the point of the knife. I mean, the point of the knife is the point that goes in first. The point of the knife is the place that goes the deepest. The point of the knife is the, is the place that, that, uh, that m- makes the cut. And that is God's word, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what happens under the weight and authority of this book? Um, all right, so what should you do? Here's a how-to. Read this book. I got a real simple thing for you. Pick a book that you'd like to read in this book. Read one chapter. Just read one chapter a day. It takes you four minutes. Read one chapter. But here's what you do. Before you read it, before you read it, stop everything and say, Lord, change me. Lord, show me what's true. Lord, soften my heart. Examine my life. Pierce me cut me, slice me, renew my, my mind, 
Show me what's true. Give me the grace to receive it. I submit myself to whatever you have for me and then read the chapter. That sound like good advice? You know, you don't want to do it. I got to punch the clock and I gotta, I'm doing a one-year Bible, so I got to hurry through this. I'm saying stop everything and say, Lord, go ahead and cut me because I know it's good for me. All right, last thing, we'll close. I read verse 13 for you one more time. Um, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, friends, um, God knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows your entire history. He knows what you will do. Before you speak, he knows the word that is on your tongue. If you don't speak, he knows what you think. Um, our, uh, our bookkeeper, Dana, I don't know if you've ever met her. Who's met Dana? Oh, really? Look at you guys. Well, let me tell you, she's an awesome bookkeeper. She's like the perfect bookkeeper. She doesn't go to church here. She's kind of an odd bird. She and I have a great relationship. I mean, a really a good relationship. I joke with her all the time. But you know, she's got a nickname. You know what her nickname is? The shark. She's had that nickname for 20 years, the shark. And uh, she's the shark because she's got the books all the time. And she knows that at any point, those books may need to be opened up and examined. Now, who knows? She may be so good, she's got $700,000 tucked away somewhere. I don't know. But, <laughs> but the point is, she knows those books have to be thrown open and every penny needs to be accounted for. That's your life, man. I mean, God opens up the books. He's got absolutely all the information on you. So without Jesus Christ, there is no hope. But by trusting in a saving uh, and, and resurre- saving work and resurrection, uh, I leave you with Isaiah 61. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. Naked are you, naked and exposed before God. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of of righteousness. Father, Lord Jesus, a blessed thought indeed. Um, We are exposed, we are laid bare. Uh, All of our um, blame shifting, all of our self-aggrandizing, all of our claim to uh, our efforts, um, our, our sincerity, our are being misunderstood, all those things, Lord, are just thrown up and before you. You have found us out. And we praise you and thank you that uh, we are covered by the righteousness of our Savior, that um, you see his, his perfect work, and uh, we pray that that would resonate in our souls and that we would be more inclined to be put under the authority of your word because you're the God who knows. We pray it in Jesus' name.